uh, church is in part a community, a family even. Uh, Jesus said that he is making us all children of God, which means we're all brothers and sisters. And some of you actually, as you're watching uh, Lilo and Stitch here, uh, you may have said, that's a lot like my family. We have a mutant in my family too. Family can be hard, isn't it? Even the best families go through incredible difficulties where sometimes you don't like each other very much. Sometimes you end up with black sheep in your family. Sometimes you're the black sheep in your family. Families are just hard. They are. So what do we do when family gets hard? What do we do when church gets hard? See, I think that's part of what's happening here in Acts chapter 6, is they have a family where nobody gets left behind or forgotten. They have an Ohana family. Ohana is just the Hawaiian word for family, by the way. They have an Ohana family, but uh, people are still starting to get left behind anyway. Did you catch that in the scripture reading? See, there are people from all over the world joining the new family of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. It's said that in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, they're having incredible success in ministry. Their church is growing hand over fist. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. See, the Hellenists are the people from outside of Palestine. They came from all over the Roman Empire. And probably their, their first language was whatever the language was where they came from. Then their second language was probably Greek. Uh, they would have spoken at least enough to get along in the marketplace and in the business world and to, to talk to other people traveling through the Roman Empire. And then maybe, maybe they spoke something like Aramaic, which is the common language in Jerusalem. That's the first language there. So already you see that there are differences. You've got the, the Hebrews who lived in and around Jerusalem, the Hellenists who came from everywhere but in and around Jerusalem. They have all of these cultural differences. They have differences of language. They have differences. I mean, yeah, people probably look down on each other a little bit in different sorts of ways. Well, you come from that background, but I come from this background. You come from that place, and no one cares about that place, but I come from this place, which is really great. There are all of these reasons that they should be divided. And it's something of a miracle, I think, that we find out that what really started to divide them is that the helpless in their congregation, the widows, were being neglected when it came to the widows from outside of Jerusalem and Judea. And by the way, when I say the helpless, the widows, I don't mean in the 21st century, all you widows are helpless. I mean that in the first century, widows, especially uh, women, uh, primarily women, were unable to provide for themselves. And their best chance at taking care of themselves in life was to go back to their family of origin if they would have them, if that was an option. So the widows are generally people who needed to be cared for. And the widows who everyone knew in Jerusalem were doing fine. But the widows who came from outside Jerusalem, outside of Palestine, were being neglected. We don't get a sense from the passage that it was, you know, like we don't care about those widows. You know, we know that they're being neglected and we don't care. Or we're purposely neglecting them. 
but rather a sense of these are just people from outside. We forgot about them. We didn't know they were here because they weren't part of our family. They came from a different place, maybe without anybody else to stand up for them. And they're being neglected. And now the, the Hellenists, the people from outside Judea, are saying, you, you aren't caring for our people the same way you're caring for your people. Can you imagine that sort of situation happening in a church or in our church? Have you experienced that situation in a church or even in our church? Where you say, I have needs from my church family but they're not being taken care of. Or maybe even more so, you say, how come that person is getting attention and I have the same need, but I'm not getting attention? We have some people here in the church, in the congregation, you are protectors one way or another. And it is part of the call God has placed on your life to make sure that people are getting taken care of evenly. No one's getting neglected. You're a protector. And when that happens, you get angry. You get upset with a a righteous anger. And you come maybe to the church leadership and you say, why is this happening? Why are people not being taken care of? Or maybe worse, because it's good to come to the church leadership and say those things. That's what happens here. But maybe worse, you're storing it up in your heart and saying, I'm so angry that these people aren't being taken care of when others are. And you're letting that dwell in your heart. How do we have an ohana sort of church? What do we do when these circumstances come up? How are we proactive about it even? Well, here's what the apostles did. We need to understand that this particular passage comes in the midst of a number of passages where the writer of Acts is telling us here were the threats to disrupt the early church, to tear it apart, and to break it. And we've seen, first of all, there were external threats, weren't there? There were uh, the religious leaders who were jealous and angry about what the apostles were teaching and said, you need to stop that. And they threw them in jail and they beat them up and they threatened them. There were these external threats to the spread of the gospel in Jerusalem. And God gave resources to the church to deal with that. First of all, you, you remember several chapters ago, uh, the apostles said, we got to obey God, and not, not men. Right? When those two are in conflict, God is the one we always need to obey. And they went home and they prayed for boldness, and God answered their prayer by pouring the Holy Spirit out on them again and afresh. And then later on, they were challenged by the, the outside people again. And this time, God had thoroughly equipped them And there was no fear in their hearts. They said, you're going to do whatever you're going to do to us. And as a matter of fact, they beat him up. And the disciples had been so changed and transformed that they left the place of their beating singing and dancing and rejoicing. Saying, look, we are like Jesus. We are full of confidence. We are full of boldness like Jesus to obey God rather than men. See, those outside threats, God took care of them. Then there was the inside threat. Remember, there were people who were actually trying to get something out of the community for themselves. They didn't care to follow Jesus. They didn't care uh, about taking care of God's people and really being a family member there. 
They said, we're going to use this group of folks to our advantage. This was Ananias and Sapphira. They gave some money, but they gave, they let it be known that, oh, we're giving all of our money when really they're only giving a portion. And remember, Ananias appeared before Peter, and Peter says, oh, no, no, I know the lie. The Holy Spirit has revealed the lie. What put it in your heart? What gave you the courage to lie to the Holy Spirit? And Ananias fell down dead. And then Sapphira came, his wife, a little while later. It said that the men who had taken Ananias out and buried him were just returning when Sapphira came, and she didn't know what had happened. And Peter says, is it true that this is how much money you got from the sale of the land that you're donating to God's people here? And she said, absolutely, that's the amount. And Peter says, oh, no, you're lying too. You care more about what you can get out of this community by looking good than belonging to the community. And she fell down and died as well. God was protecting his church from divisions and from pressure both inside and outside of it. But now here's this situation. Why did it come about? You know, it doesn't, again, the, the passage doesn't tell us exactly why the widows of the Hellenists were being uh, ignored, were not being taken care of in the same way that the widows of the Hebrews were. But I, I, think, I think that what we're hearing is that somebody just plain forgot. That's it. Somebody was human and either wasn't aware of all of the needs because it was outside of their social circle, or maybe they meant to do something about it and they thought it was important, but the demands of life and their, what, what, everything that was happening was just too much for them to take care of it. And certain people in the church were forgotten and were suffering and were probably angry and hurt because of it. This is a real threat to the church. I mean, can you, what are some of the things that could happen? I mean, first of all, you could have people who just leave and say, this isn't actually you know, the, the sort of community that it claimed to be. I'm getting out of here. I'm going to go try and find something different. You have people who, who might need encouragement in their faith who aren't getting it and who will abandon it because they're not actually experiencing what God promises. That's bad. Then you have on top of that, maybe these people will, will leave and then they'll go badmouth the community to everybody else and say, they say they care about everybody, but they don't because they didn't care about me. It'll damage the mission that God has given them. Remember, at the beginning of Acts, Jesus, as he's leaving, says, you are going to be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And it's going to be a lot harder if there are people saying, well, you, you don't really practice what you preach. You don't really follow through. It's a real threat to the church. So what's the solution? What are we going to do about this? How does God make us Ohana sort of family? First of all, we find out what's not going to happen. It says the, the 12 apostles found out what was going on, and they summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. They said, this is important, and we need to do something about it, but this is not what God has called us to. 
There's a clear sense in the church that God has a call on each and every one of us. He has brought us to this place. He has brought us together on purpose. And we each need to fulfill what God has called us to. And God has not called us, the 12 apostles, to distribute food. It's not because distributing food is unworthy. It's not because it's bad. It's certainly not bad. It's not because the 12 apostles don't care about it. It's because they have a ministry, and if they were to do this other thing, it would take them off of the goal. They'd be saying, well, God, you said we should preach the word, but we really think we should take care of the widows. So essentially, they say to the rest of the church, we can't do this on our own. Running the entire church is not within our power and our capacity to do. And as I was reading this this week, I thought, thank you, Jesus. I don't have to do it all on my own. And thank you, Jesus, that none of you have ever made me do it all on my own. I'm grateful for you, church. Is there a little bit of freedom in that for you as well? Maybe sometimes when the pastor comes up and he says, we have these needs in the church, and you're already doing a whole bunch of stuff, and you hear about these other needs, and you, you start to think like, oh, how do I make time for all of those as well? I can't make time for all of those as well. And then maybe you go home and you just feel guilty about it. And no one does anything other than feeling guilty. Anyone here ever experienced that? You don't have to raise your hand. I see one very prominently, but you don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> Folks, let me tell you something. You are meant to reflect Jesus into his church and into the world. You are meant for that. But you are not meant to be Jesus to the church and to the world. You cannot do it. I cannot do it. We're not enough. And that's okay. God never told us, you, go be Jesus just like Jesus was Jesus. He said, no, go be like Jesus in the ways that I empower you and I gift you and I call you to. Amen? Is that good news? Yeah. And let's, let's take this a step further. Even Jesus didn't do everything, did he? Jesus didn't manage the money for the disciples. Judas did that. That may not be the best example because it didn't turn out well, <laughs> but it's true. Jesus, remember there were points in his ministry where he sent out the disciples two by two, and he says, go cast out demons, go tell people about all of this, because Jesus couldn't be everywhere all at once. And you know what? When you have six groups of two going out, that's six times the number of people you can meet and you can impact. Even Jesus didn't do everything. Jesus did what God called him to do. We can do that. So first of all, there's the negative here. When we have the needs in the church, it is not your individual responsibility to meet each and every one. You cannot do it. I cannot do it. We none of us can alone. So what do they do instead? Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Notice what he says. He doesn't say, go find uh, the newest people who showed up and put them in charge of a ministry. We've done that here once or twice, and it rarely works well. 
Don't find the newest people and the least qualified and say, wow, won't it be amazing when God uses them so powerfully to do these things? No. It says find people who you know are reliable and dependable, good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Isn't that fascinating? All they have to do is give food to widows. And he says, good repute, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. That's who we want. Probably because leadership takes all of those things. They're not just handing out food, they're leading the church and giving out food. And we're going to find, uh, because the first person mentioned here that they chose is Stephen, and the whole next chapter and more is about Stephen and the unbelievable way he followed Jesus. So find people who are appropriate to the job, who God says are appropriate to the job. Now, I've been saying a couple of times this morning, you don't need to do everything, but you do need to do the things that God calls you to. So I wonder if, you know, as we're looking at this, we're talking about this is how we choose the people. Look for folks who are uh, up to the task, not necessarily because they're, they're qualified, they've got the degree in that field that you wanted in, but they are people who will honor God in the way that they do this, because they got the Spirit, because they live like Jesus, because they show Christian maturity. But how do you know if that might be you? Because what if somebody comes up to you and says, we've identified that we think you'd be great for leading this ministry? How do you evaluate that sort of call? We think you'd be great at performing this job in the church. You know, let me just tell you, first of all, some things you don't have to think too hard for. You know, if somebody says, hey, will you show up to the church workday and help us? You can say yes or no without being like, I need to go pray about that for a while. Okay? You know what you can do and what you can't do. But when it comes to actually taking on responsibility at the church for these sorts of things, how do you know if that's the thing to say yes to or not? Well, let me tell you, there isn't always a hard and fast answer. I can't just be like, oh, here's, here's like you roll the die, and if it comes up one to three, yes. You know, if it comes up four to six, no. But here are the kind of things you should be thinking about. Is this something that I feel a tug in my heart about? And let me tell you, it can be a tug in a lot of different directions. When I was uh, first coming to grips with the fact that I think God's really calling me to be a pastor, uh, there were tugs in a lot of different directions. There were lots of tugs toward that's a terrible idea. There were. I mean, it was, I don't want the responsibility. I don't want the visibility. I don't want, you know, to be in charge of all the people. I don't want to uh, uh, have to be an example in that sort of way. I don't think I can even do that. I'd be much more satisfied. Here, here is what I, as I was bargaining with God over this. You know, God, why don't I just be a professor? That way I can teach all the stuff, and, you know, then if I live it or I don't, you know, Whatever. It doesn't work that way, by the way. But there was a tug in my heart away. But let me tell you, there was a powerful tug, which was telling me, pay attention. And then there was a tug in the other direction, too. There was a tug to, you have to do this. You have to. Let me tell a story to illustrate that. When I had already sent my application into seminary, Kayla and I were getting ready to go. We were a few months away. I got a call on a Sunday morning. And calls on Sunday mornings were almost always a bad thing, in my experience. It was my parents telling me 
that, well, your brother uh, went to a party last night, got drunk, found a knife, and tried to attack somebody, and he's in county jail this morning. And this is a felony crime, and we're trying to figure out what to do. And this had been a long journey, a long story, uh, a lot of struggle in my family. And I hung up the phone, getting all the information, and you know, just as I'm telling it, maybe you don't get sort of the emotional impact this had on me, but I hung up the phone and I just cried because I was so frustrated, I was so angry, and I was so sad that we were there. And God started speaking in my heart. And one of the things that he was saying was, you have, your family, you've done everything you know how, and we messed up in a lot of ways as a family. You've done everything that you know how to give something good. And you need to stop trying to do it without me. Because I'm the one who's going to change his heart. There's no doctor who can fix this. There's no you know, jail that's going to make this better. I'm the only one who can change his heart. And as I was hearing this and praying, my prayer started to shift. I said, God, I hate living in a world like this. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of living in a world with Sunday morning phone calls with this sort of news. And I know we're not the only family who experiences this sort of thing. And this morning, I am giving you my life to cooperate with your transforming work in the world. Take all of it because I want a different world. And you're the only one who can do it. And it was clear to me in that moment that with the gifts that God had given me and with the things that I cared about most deeply and that I would do most passionately, I needed to be a pastor. And I remember encountering a number of people uh, at my job as we started to tell people, you know, we're, we're quitting and we're, we're moving to California uh, to, to become a pastor. And they would say, gosh, I wish God, some people would say, I wish God spoke as clearly to me as he did to you. I wish I knew what God wanted out of my life. And I, you know, my heart broke over those things because I didn't get some special message from Jesus. It was just an encounter with the gospel and with the brokenness of the world that clarified for me, just go use your gifts in service of Jesus Christ. So that's the big question for you. What has God put on my heart? What gifts has he given me for his service? And how is he calling me to use them amongst his people and in our community? You know, sometimes that's really easy to figure out. Other times it's hard. You know, uh, something I encounter in this church every, not infrequently, is, you know, some of you are older. You are. I can't change that. I'm sorry. But there is a sense that I encounter a lot with older people of, you know, I'm past being used in some of these ways. Don't ask me. I can't do the work day. My body just won't do that anymore. Or maybe there's a sense of, I can't you know, connect with young people. I don't even understand young people. Right? 
Don't ask me to do that. I, I can't. And there are a couple of things, you know, I, I always want to say in response to that. The first is, okay, maybe you can't do the things you used to. Sometimes that's true. But you know what you can do? You can pray. Can you start with that? Will you start by committing to pray for the church and the ministry of the church and the people that you encounter in your life every day? Because let me tell you something. The church doesn't do anything meaningful unless it begins with prayer. Sometimes that's why when we've done stuff, it hasn't worked. It hasn't been meaningful because we didn't begin with prayer. We didn't continue in prayer. Would you just start with prayer? Where if you're saying, what is God calling me to do? How is he calling me to be a part of the mission of this church to be a transforming force in this community for Jesus Christ? Just start with prayer. You can do that, every one of us. The second thing you ought to do is just show up somewhere. doesn't matter where. Show up to the food pantry. Show up to a small group. Show up to Sunday school with the kids. Show up somewhere and start to work. When I was in seminary, my professor of field education said, I went to seminary, I graduated, and I spent my first two years as a graduate of seminary as a youth pastor. And I learned one thing in my two years as a youth pastor. I am not a youth pastor. And he said, and it was worth it. It was worth it. You don't have to start in the perfect place. Just start somewhere and see how God speaks and moves. And maybe what you'll find is you're not a youth pastor or, you know, whatever it is. But that's okay. Then you'll know. And then go to the next thing. Go to the next place. Am I that? You might actually discover, well, I'm not a youth youth pastor. You, that may not be what you guys step into, <laughs> but whatever it is, you may discover, I'm, I'm not you know, great at the food pantry. I'm not great at the small group or something like that. You may find that, but as you find that out, you may also discover, but I was really good at this, and I really felt the Lord's satisfaction when I was doing this part of it. And it gives you a, not just a direction not to go, but a direction to start moving. So just start serving. Just do it. The third thing you can do. Uh, what is the third thing that you can do? I've lost my place. Just start serving. The third thing you can do, now I remember. Do it with people. Do life with people. And start asking them questions. What do you see in me? If you had to pick a ministry for me, what, what might it be? What are the differences that I have made in your life? And, you know, sometimes you don't even have to ask the question. People just start to tell you, wow, it was amazing when you did this or when you went to that place or you just light up when this thing is happening. Do it with people. Get, get the testimony of the church about who and what you are. And don't just do it to figure it out. Do it to confirm what that ministry may be as well. You know, I feel like God might be calling me toward this thing. What do you think? People may say, I've been waiting for you. This is my experience in part when I became, when, I, when we told our family, uh, we're, we're going to go to seminary, I'm going to become a pastor. There were a couple of folks who said, what took you so long? That was helpful. 
in confirming God's call. I had a friend at one point uh, who you know, he said, uh, I've been thinking you know, it's time to move on to something else. And I was like, yes, it is. It's been time. Not just now, but for a couple of years. God has called you to great things. I don't know if this is exactly what he wants you to do, but I know where you are is not what he wants you to do. It's not because it's bad. It's just because it's not pursuing faithfulness in this case toward what God wants for you. Ask people. Be, do life together with people. And do all of this, of course, in prayer. God, show me. Show me where to go. Show me what to do. Show me what to be. And just do. And then when you find it, when you understand this is God's call in my life, this is what he wants me to be about in this church or in this place or in my workplace, whatever it is, come back to the church and communicate that. Say, I've, you know, I'm convinced this is God's call in my life. The people in the church have been confirming that this is God's call in my life. And then let us do what the apostles did. Did you catch it? They chose these seven, they set them before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. They commissioned them for that ministry. Listen, I don't care how holy it seems or how insignificant it seems, whatever it is that you feel like, I think God's calling me to this. If you are saying, I think I, you know, I'm going to change my job, I'm going somewhere else, whether that's because of a great you know, deal of meditation and prayer or just because that is the necessity in life, you lost your job, you got to find a new one, you're moving, something like that, would you come to the church, come to the elders and the session, come to me and say, this is what's happening in my life. Will you pray for me? And then let's, let's do that. I would love to do it here in front of the whole church. I'd love the whole church to send us into everything that we do. But if, if you don't want to stand in front of the whole church, we'll, we'll figure that out. Okay? We'll do it in a smaller group. But I don't care what it is. We will commission you into your job. We will commission you into a new ministry. We will commission you as grandparents. We will commission you into anything in this life because God is not absent in that call. It's no accident, not just that you're here this morning, watching online, here in the pews, whatever it is. It's no accident as well that you live in the house that you live in, that you interact with the people that you see each and every day. And I would love for us as a church to commission you into any of those things. When you hear, this is what God is calling me to, no matter how seemingly significant or insignificant, come back to the church and say, will you pray for me? And will you commission me into this? And we'll do it. What happens? What happens when we have a church like this? Where the people are all saying, what is God calling me to? And actively seeking that out. When we don't, you know, put all of the burden and all of the responsibility of all of the ministry of the church on one two, four, or six people, but say, we all own this under the leadership of whatever leaders we have, of the session and of the pastor. We all own this under that leadership. Then I think needs will be met, whatever they are. And I think when problems come to light, we will be able to solve them. 
because we will have a church that wants to and is willing to and that God is equipping to solve them such that we will be able to carry out our mission just like the apostles, just like the early church with that same sort of power because it's the same Holy Spirit in 2022 as it was in year 42. 22 is before Jesus died, so I, I had to, you know, couldn't keep it totally symmetrical there. And that's all we have to do. So let me ask you, will you commit to that today? Will you commit simply to saying, I will listen for God's call in my life. I will seek it out and I will do it with the church. Because if you will, we will have an Ohana church. Remember what they said? Ohana means family. And family means no one gets left behind or forgotten. I want that church. I think we're on our way. Let's do it together. All of this is possible not because of who we are and what we accomplish on our own, but because of the God who loves us, 